you know, love can be ignorant and love can be naive, but those are the things that I love best is the things where there's sort of like a bedrock of love and that love is what sort of carries us through. And so as a reader, I really value that. I really love. My name is Sam J. Miller. I am a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, usually about queer revolutionaries of one sort or another. And I am also a community organizer in New York City. I have a novel coming out called The Art of Starving, and my preferred pronouns are he, him. I first met Sam J. Miller at the Clarion Writers Workshop in San Diego back in 2012. And what I remember most of my early impressions of Sam are two things. One, the copious amount of tea he carried with him at all times. And two, the intensity of his care for himself, for the world, for stories, and for you. Yeah, I just think that that identity formation is traumatizing for lots of people in lots of different ways, and that those traumas sort of end up being like our identity right Right. like that's that's who we are is the traumas that we've experienced Mm -hmm. uh and so uh i don't think that queer white working class jewish butcher kids from upstate new york um have any kind of like special claim on or or unique uh ownership of being unhappy with (laughs) themselves with their physical with their body sam j miller has written a lot of amazing stories some of which have been finalists or long-listed for the Nebula, Hugo, Locus, and World Fantasy Awards. He won the 2013 Shirley Jackson Award for his short story, 57 Reasons for the Slate Quarry Suicides, a story which I find typical of a lot of Sam's stories in that it is a kind of minefield of shame and power and vengeance through which you are carried more or less safely with great care and love. Recently, Sam and I met at the feminist sci-fi convention, WizCon. We sat outside in the shadow of the state capitol, and we discussed, among other things, the dubious magic of violence and how to keep going when it feels like you've lost everything. So, you know, life is going to fucking suck, and the way to get... The thing that makes it livable, the thing that makes it... The thing that makes us keep going and is why I have not yet jumped off of anything really high is because of love and because of the people that I love and the, um, you know, the things that I love and the books and the music and the movies that I love and the fact that, like, we have art as a refuge and we have each other as a refuge and that we have this, you know, deep connection that, uh, that is there that we can access whenever we want. I'm Chris Camerud and this is a Storyological Pocket interview with Sam J. Miller. I want to know... When Sam was a kid, like when you think back to when you were a little kid, what you kind of see or smell or hear from your home? Meat. Meat? Yes. Why, why meat? Because my father was a butcher and it was a small business that he was the sole proprietor of and he worked super long hours. And so he would come home and he would smell, like his clothes would smell of meat and he had meat on his hands and usually on his shoes he had a pair of shoes that always had like flecks of animal flesh on them. And one of, and some of my first toys were uh, he would bring home these stickers that are like the you know prime rib or grade A sticker that you put on the meat package, and so he would bring those home, and I would put those on my blocks that I played with. Um, so I had all I would build castles out of meat. Uh, now, now that I think about it, that's I guess that's what I was doing. Uh, remind me where you grew up. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York called Hudson which is on the titular Hudson River, 114 miles north of New York City and 38 miles south of Albany. Why do you know exactly how many miles it is away from things? Uh, I don't know. I'm very obsessed with the Hudson River, and 
I used to have fantasies of running away and uh, following the rails that go along the Hudson River. So I think probably it was some some degree of you know planning for my eventual escape mm. uh, that seemed important. Uh, so you you wanted to escape? Yeah. I, what did you want to escape the the butcherdom? What was it about Hudson that? I really, I, I had a, um, my family was great. My family was always really supportive. I just really hated school. Um, I did very well in school, but I had a lot of uh, bullies and just nasty people and just generally felt really uh, out of place and um, fairly convinced that at some point um, I was going to bring great shame on my family. You know, m my family was sort of in this way that often happens in small towns. Like everybody knew my dad. Uh, we weren't rich. We had this failing butcher shop that sort of spent 10 years in a slow collapse and finally closed when, when Walmart came to town. Um, but my dad was sort of very, very well liked by everyone. And so uh, in that sort of small town, close-knit way, I, I had this pretty solid conviction that I was gonna, uh, by being gay, when, uh, I was probably going to, uh, you know, be a great, be a great source of, of shame and embarrassment. Um, and so I used to I used to fantasize either about uh, running away or I often I had like a whole sort of like suicide backup plan um, uh, for just how I would do it in such a way that I would um, give my parents just enough plausible deniability that maybe I had been murdered. Yeah. So you you were considering at an early age murder. Yes. How to fake it. Yeah. Right. How yeah. to how to kill oneself without bringing shame. Right. Because you don't want to be an embarrassment. Right. Right. There's no shame in being murdered. Murder, murder, okay. murder happens how, to the best of us. Um, so how do dinosaurs enter into this? Because I know you began loving dinosaurs, right? Very young. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my initial plan when, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up was I wanted to be a dinosaur. Um, and then after several adults told me that that wasn't actually possible, I figured they were probably not lying and it probably wasn't possible. So then I wanted to be a paleontologist. So probably from like four or five, I was pretty obsessed with dinosaurs. Okay. And I, uh, you know, there was probably a period in my adolescence where I was too cool for dinosaurs, but that passed quickly, I'm sure. Okay. When did you decide to go from paleontologist to writer who writes sometimes about dinosaurs? I don't know. I think I, I realized, you know, uh, as, as many people do who sort of fantasize about being a, a scientist, that being a scientist is a ton of work and is really hard and you have to be really smart and dedicated and committed. And, um, and so realizing that the, uh, uh, the sciences were not for me, I started writing writing when I was a teenager, but when I look back and I figure out where I decided, where I started to become a writer, it was when I was in elementary school and I was really bad at sports and at recess, uh, no one wanted to play with me um, and I didn't want to play with them because they were doing things I hated. Um, so I started telling really elaborate lies. So I would tell people that I had seen horror movies that I had not actually seen. Um, and you know, none of us were allowed to see horror movies. So they were like, oh my God, tell me all about Jaws. Um, which I only knew what I had read on the back of the box at the video store. So I would make up these elaborate, like, hour-long narratives of, like, that had nothing to do with the plot of the movie um, uh, that I realized were uh, stories uh, much later. Uh, so, yeah, I would lie to people so that they would be friends with me right. and so that they would hang out with me. And so that's sort of, like, the roots of my career as a fiction writer. Which, things with beards, there's a lot of lying, to oneself, right? I think you talked about how in The Thing, I don't know who the character is, McMurdy? McCready. McCready. 
right in the thing you said McCready had all the pictures of women on the wall and you you felt like it was totally cool for you to imagine he's lying to himself or he's projecting a lie yes so is that you think that's fair to say that that stretched into your fiction where you continue to write about people who are lying to themselves or lying to other people for that connection I think so. I mean, I, I really like the uh, RuPaul quote, we're born naked and the rest is drag. I think it's RuPaul. I hope I'm not misattributing that. It's okay. Just uh, later, if I need to insert another person's <laughs> name, I'll be like, Sam, who what? Okay. Right, right. Yeah. William Shakespeare. Uh, uh, so the, we're born naked and the rest is drag. So our, our identities, everything about us that isn't just like our naked bodies is a construct um, and is a story that we are telling to ourselves and to others. So I think that I am really fascinated as a writer in, in the sort of narratives that we construct about ourselves and, and how that, you know, relates to who we really are and what's the narrative we tell ourselves versus the narrative that we tell the world. Um, and so with Things With Beards, um, there's no real clue in the movie The Thing about who these people are, right? We don't get a lot of backstory. Um, and... One of the, the one of the only sort of background elements is in McCready, the character played by Kurt Russell. In his um, room, there's pinups on the wall of naked or semi-clad women, um, and so you know those. Thinking about that as a sort of tell that the filmmakers were uh, using to communicate masculinity um, or a certain kind of like heterosexual uh, machismo, um, and sort of thinking about how that might be what the filmmakers intended. Um, but that that could be read a lot of ways, and, and one possible way to read that is that, that this is sort of performative masculinity that, that isn't real or that is real, but that doesn't necessarily connote heterosexuality. It connotes a, a, a idea of masculinity that is synonymous with heterosexuality. So wanting people to think that you're that you're straight. Yeah, um, like drag, like dressing as a straight man. Exactly. A path. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so that's true of when. When in cases when you are passing, right, when, uh, when you are being perceived by people as something that you're not, and sometimes that is something you control and something that is not something you control. And so, um, you know, as a white cis male who sort of performs masculinity in a kind of conventional way, I feel like I can pass for straight in, in certain interactions, um, which is a privilege that not everyone has, um, but that that's not really different than the way anybody performs gender and that that the way uh the sort of hetero macho um uh athletic hooded sweatshirt wearing baseball cap wearing dude bro um you know that person is also performing masculinity um and in a way that is not necessarily more honest than than someone else who is wanting to pass for that right that uh that's these are all costumes we wear these are all ways that we try to uh blend in or you know be perceived as something uh by others like i realized that when i wear a baseball cap i feel some in some ways i feel safer i feel like i blend i feel like i i, I am less likely to or i'm more likely to be mistaken for a dude bro um, which isn't necessarily a, a priority of mine, um, but that sometimes I want to wear a baseball cap, yeah. and that when I do, that's what happens. Um, and so thinking about that as like a, a strategy, a safety strategy, but also thinking about that as a, a strategy that might make other people who are uh, who do not feel safe, who who feel unsafe around dude bros, um, that that is that there's a sort of cost associated with that, right? That um, by 
aping um, by by mimicking a by mimicking patriarchy by wearing patriarchy's clothes that that people who are you know threatened by or have been have been harmed by patriarchy that that actually is makes them feel unsafe. So it's this this sort of when you start to get into the the costumes we wear and the consequences of it, it can get really bewildering and 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 hard to feel hard to feel good about any choice you make. Yeah, because you can get perks from the way you dress, but you know it's hurting the people that maybe you feel more aligned with. Maybe, or maybe maybe no one, maybe no one gives a shit what I wear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's the um, the shame, like the unsourceable shame that sometimes you carry around. Not just you, but just in general. <laughs> you don't general, know about people. my shame. Um, no, we'll get into that. Awesome. Um, we talked once about how, like, when I was a kid, I was doing these kind of sissy push-ups in the bathroom where I would lean on the sink and, like, because I was like, I gotta, I gotta bulk up. Right. I wanna, I wanna look and be like a man. And you mentioned, I think, doing that. I wonder if you think that your idea of manhood has changed from that point as a kid to where you are now, or if some part of that continues to kind of be like tugged along behind you like you can't quite cut that idea of what it means to be a man yeah i think that that's really interesting and i and i think that um it's complicated because i think that i that's that was the language that i used then of like i want to be like i want to look i want to be perceived as a certain kind of man that was that was sort of like the goal that i had um uh but it's not the goal i have now i feel pretty confident and and certain of what I am mm-hmm. um, but I still have like I was just today putting on this t-shirt and I was like this t-shirt is maybe a little too tight Sam maybe you should have maybe you should have brought a medium instead of a small um, so I do still like obsess over like my appearance and um, and I don't think that's necessarily different from you know when I was uh, in high school and I wanted to be a tough guy or I wanted to I wanted I thought that by being strong I thought that by looking a certain way I would deflect the bullying I was getting or that I would um, somehow feel better about myself and who I was um, and that that's never really gone away and, and, I, and even though I tell myself that that doesn't really matter and that getting validation from looking good is not isn't real doesn't 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 actually help me like there have been times in my life when I've been working out a lot and like I think look you know yeah. better um, and that hasn't made me <laughs> that yeah. hasn't made me feel not miserable, right? right? That hasn't made me feel like good about myself. Yeah. I mean, I've felt good about myself, but that hasn't silenced the voice that was like, you are not the sort of beautiful male ideal uh, that you want. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is deeply sort of entrenched in sort of the formation of queer identity and the sort of like, when, you, when you're a gay boy, especially a closeted gay boy in a small town, uh, you don't necessarily have the sort of validation uh, that your peers might have where you are sexually desiring others who in turn sexually desire you and so that you, uh, you know, feel better about yourself and your body because you are desired. Yeah. Um, and so I was doing a lot of desiring. I was not being desired as far as I was aware yeah. in any kind of like reciprocal, physical, intimate way that with anyone that I, you know, wanted to do that yeah. with. Um, so, you know, there's sort of this sort of... Cr- crushing lingering body image uh dysmorphia slash discomfort that i still feel that is mostly under control but that never never really goes away yeah um that i never really stop looking at myself in the mirror when i pass and going "Ah, it's not great yeah speaking of body dysmorphia the um, your book the art of starving does feature 
somebody with a, let's say, not simple relationship with their body or their power. Talk to me about that. Like, where did the book come from? What do you, what did you hope, or what did you find in yourself and in the world, kind of as you wrote it? So I myself had an eating disorder when I was a teenager, and it was it was not as bad as the character in my books. It, it didn't it didn't result in my hospitalization. I did get rushed to the emergency room at some point because I was in really really extreme stomach pain. Um, but I had this sort of like real like we talked about sense that uh, my that I was just disgusting and no one would ever desire me and um that by restricting my food i could i could assert a sort of sense of like i am not i'm gonna i'm not as fat as i think i am so at the same time as i was dealing with a lot of bullying and gender and like you know shame and conflict uh of my with my identity uh so that's where that's where the story came from and uh, in in the novel, the character, the hungrier he gets, the sharper his senses get until he begins to acquire uh, supernatural abilities um, and uses them to exact fiery vengeance on the people who wronged him. Um, and that's not true. That that part is not not that's, was not was not my experience. It's not autobiographical. That, that part is not autobiographical. Metaphorically autobiographical. Yeah, I mean, I think it meta metaphorizes, which people keep telling me is not a word, but I'm not going to stop using. Uh, it metaphorizes this thing that I've, I've heard other folks talk about as a symptom of eating disorders, which is that it gives you a sense of power. It gives you a sense of control. Um, and, and actually, violence does that, mm. you know. Vi- violence against yourself, yeah. violence against others, against others. One of the functions is to make you um, uh, feel stronger or, you know, feel more powerful um, or make the other person feel less powerful. Um, so it's a form of, you know, an eating disorder is a form of violence that's been turned on oneself. Um, and so the story is sort of about the character's journey from like finding power through violence to finding power through self-love and self-acceptance. I remember talking to Emma about, like I grew up feeling, for whatever reason, ashamed or like a monster, like nobody desired me. But the privilege of being able to go into a bar, which I hated going into a bar, but in theory I could go up and talk to a girl and there was at least some inherent assumption that that was okay, that that was what was supposed to happen. And that not having even that assumption can be weird. It was weird. Yeah. It was weird. Um, And I think that that has, uh, yeah, I just think that that identity formation is traumatizing for lots of people in lots of different ways and that those traumas sort of end up being like our identity, right? Right. Like that's that's who we are, it's the traumas that we've experienced. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I don't think that queer, white, working class, Jewish butcher kids from upstate New York um, have any kind of like special claim on or or unique uh, ownership of being unhappy with themselves, with no. their physical, with their body. Yeah, um, but you have yours. Yes, exactly. You have special ownership of yes, you, exactly. the ways that you are broken. Exactly. And try to put yourself back together in a way that, I, you know, attempts not to hurt too many other people. Right. Um, though in your stories, people hurt a lot of other people. Yes. Uh, why? <laughs> why is everybody killing other people in your story? It seems like, it's like I'm starting to read a Sam story. Okay, a lot of people are gonna die. Really? Well, like maybe just the last, the last few, <laughs> like like things with beards, um, heat of us, angel monster man, 
57 Reasons for the Slate Quarry Suicide. Oh, well, so all of that is because I'm a bad person <laughs> and I have no respect for human life and wantonly uh, murder people in a way that is legally sound and ethical, which is by doing it in fiction instead of real life. No, I, I actually, that none of that is true. I, you know, I think I've, I've said to you before um, that one of my main obsessions to explore in fiction is why do people do terrible things? And so um, I often will try to explore where people are coming from when they're doing things that I would never do. There's this sort of one of my like quotes I live by is from the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, he says, well, no one thinks I'm a bad person. Whatever you do, no matter how terrible it is, it makes sense to you in your head. Um, and so that, you know, sort of thinking about that as no matter, like even the most evil motherfucker uh, probably thinks that whatever they did, whatever evil shit they did um, was justified. Um, so, you know, one of my first published stories was uh, narrated by a woman who participated in a terrorist attack on an abortion clinic because um, I was really fascinated by, like, there was this, there's a Planned Parenthood in my hometown and there would always be these protests across the street from it uh, and many of the protesters were women and so sort of thinking about that as this sort of, like, complicated thing of, like, why are women participating in their own oppression um, and, uh, you know, and of course they have really good reasons for it, right? And of course they probably wouldn't put articulate it that way. Um, you know, they don't think that they're participating in their own oppression. Um, they, they probably think they're doing something like really good and it's really like ultimately about helping women. So, uh, yeah. Is that ambivalence, it seems important to you because you could, you know, cast in your story somebody that we're designed to hate and then help us in hating them. But it seems like you cast people who we might tend to want to love, somebody who's oppressed, somebody who clearly is having life shit on them. And then it feels like you sometimes work hard to complicate our ability to connect with them and then maybe try to bring us back at some point. Is that, is that fair? Well, shit, when you put it like that, that sounds terrible. <laughs> no, that sounds like a terrible idea. I love idea. it, though. I love it. I love it because... Well, I'll tell you why I love it, because I do love your stories, is that when I read stories about people as some kind of armored personnel carrier goes by. Uh, they're coming for me. Yeah, we're live they're at coming for you. They're coming for you, Chris. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They know, I, I they know what some... you did. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but I grew up afraid I was always going to be caught doing something wrong. Did you have a traumatic police encounter in your childhood or adolescence? No. Because no, I did, I mean, that's, that's, why, that's, that's why, why? That's why I have you my... You had a like, traumatic... That's why, that's why I have my looking over the shoulder, like, uh, when are they going to arrest yeah. me uh, thing. As a, as a small child. I was, I was 13, and just cops were fucking with me and my friend, and it was totally, like, not a big deal. But it was... But, but, but they was were nasty. But they were assholes, and it fucked me up. Yeah. And they detained me for a really long time, and my mom came looking for me. And she was convinced, and still is to this day, that I was doing whatever the cops said that we were doing um but she took me home yeah. and did not get arrested or or further fucked with right but that cop horrible human is there a reason they did that to me did you ever figure yeah yeah no i, I think that's i think that's um i definitely think it makes total sense and i could totally see that cop like you know being a really loving father and uh going home and like being a really good dad in some ways, probably not in others, um, and uh, you know, having a totally clear conscience. And if and if was ever 
called to task for it was ever said you did this thing that was fucked up and you probably did it a lot because that's probably like how you roll and you probably do that on a daily basis would probably say well if i can like scare kids straight you know like it's good for kids to fear cops right it's good for kids to like not want to have a police encounter so that if if in this totally low stakes situation where i wasn't going to do i wasn't going to do anything um and they weren't genuinely in in danger that i actually as traumatic as that might have been helped them right i'm sure it totally makes sense it made you a better writer so exactly (laughs) exactly and of course there's like you know a huge like uh you know privilege aspect here where youth of color have much more (laughs) horrific and much more regular uh uh encounters um that i think are much that i probably couldn't rationalize i couldn't rationalize those cops right right um or if i if i could i probably wouldn't want to is that a limit like we talked about this i think before but is that a limit you found yourself running into more and more the sense that there are people you don't want to work to understand or work to present in a way that we are meant to understand and empathize with. Yeah, definitely. Because I certainly have a problem with narratives where there's a there's a certain kind of person who is a certain kind of horrific who we are then made to sympathize with. So, for example, like I love villains um, and I uh, really you know, tend to identify with them and, 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 and find that they're the people that I connect with much more than the heroes. Um, there's certain kinds of villainy and certain kinds of like bad behavior that I don't want to be sympathetic to. And I don't want to find out that like this person who did this terrible thing, um, had a really rough childhood and was, you know, just, I think of like Joffrey on Game of Thrones, right? Um, you know, he tortures women because he, you know, spent his whole life knowing that he was the, bastard son of incest um or whatever right like i don't certain kinds of behavior sometimes i will pull back from a story that i want to write because i'm like neither i nor anyone else needs to feel sympathy for a person who does this right whatever this uh might be i've been reading a lot of james baldwin awesome lately good he is amazing my favorite american writer why uh (laughs) because for one thing i think that nobody does james baldwin and Virginia Woolf and Samuel Delaney are the three writers who can do fiction and nonfiction at such an incandescent level, right? Like most people are like really good at one and might dip their toes in the other and might do okay with it, um, but never that, never the same degree of fireworks. I think that James Baldwin's essays are magnificent and powerful and earth shattering in a similar but also very different way from his fiction and from his novels and i think he inhabits and addresses identity really differently um through those two mediums um and i just feel like he's one of these writers um who has his his voice is such that every sentence has just like the weight of truth it just feels like not only is it true but it's true in a way that uh has never been written before has never it's a truth that has not been uttered before i feel like in reading him there's a lot of of mixtures of shame and hope and violence and that's kind of when i was reading him i thought oh this reminds me of sam before i talked to you (laughs) and i thought i thought one i'm this is exciting me in different ways because james baldwin is making me think of sam who i love and then i you know i can tell sam hey i was reading james baldwin you know he seems like he's (laughs) he's somehow connected i wondered maybe we've kind of been circling around this but do you feel like there's a way to be tender and violent at the same time or to be violently tender if that makes sense because i feel when i read your stories i feel a warmth but it feels 
Well, kind of like diner coffee. Like, there's something bitter and honest about it that's kind of painful. Like, it kind of hits you in the face, but you feel better for it. I, thank you. That's very, that's very kind. I don't, I, I had never really thought about it that way. But now, now that you say it, I do feel like, as a reader, um, those are the things that I love best. Is the things where there's sort of like a bedrock of love. And uh, often that is, like, where I connect to character the most, right? I think of The Hunger Games, where... Katniss and Katniss's voice and Katniss's sort of um, mission is so rooted in her in love. Um, at the same time, it's rooted in anger and at some points hate. Um, but that love is what sort of carries us through. And so, as a reader, I really value that. I really love when um, an an author can sort of establish this sort of like profound love that that then lets you look at the, the horror, right? So one of my favorite novels um, is Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. And so there's this one level on which it's a sort of like really frothy and kind of like not great stakes day in a woman's life as she plans a party, right? And, you know, buys the flowers herself. And once you sort of um, start following that, you're sort of led into this, you know, the profound regret she has over decisions she's made and the life that she didn't live and the man she did not choose and and other characters, including a sort of like profoundly damaged war veteran who ultimately uh, takes his own life in the course of the day. Um, so that, you know, as you're sort of following this like profound um, love, which in many ways is, is naive, uh, I think there's often a really uh, interesting... Um, and probably not unproblematic naivete to Virginia Woolf's characters, right? There's a scene in, there's a, there's a line into the lighthouse where, um, you know, woman who is the sort of main character is clearing the table and is sort of like, you know, there's these men who have, she's eaten dinner with and she, who she has helped prepare dinner for. And she sort of like has this great profound moment of like love and respect for them, even though she's annoyed with them on a number of levels. And she sort of like lists the things that she's grateful to them for like, oh, aren't men great because they do this and they do this. Um, and one of the things she lists is run India. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, so it's this the you know sort of like really glib two word mm. like glorification and celebration of you know like horrific imperialism uh, that that is sort of like tossed in there. So you know love can be ignorant mm. and love can be naive. And I don't want to say that Virginia Woolf wasn't didn't knowingly put that in there. Didn't knowingly. I don't know her politics on imperialism. Um, I wouldn't assume that they're great, but they could be. Um, so I don't want to say where the author was coming from, but the character's love um, was naive and not without cost to others. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, if that, that may be something that I've tried to, uh, to carry over into my own fiction because um, I really love loving characters, even if I can be like, dude, get your shit together. Right. Since 8 seems like a show where there's a bedrock of love... And connection that sometimes feels revolutionary in its own way. Yes. So uh, my favorite sort of example of that and why I love that narrative as opposed to others um, is that in the first season of Sense8, no spoilers, uh, there is a nine-minute sequence of um, the characters, the, the eight characters being born, right? And the... Here, I get choked up. Uh, the sort of, like, 
you know, the pain that their mothers go through, the, the sort of like love and wonderment of the family, the sort of different ways that it happened, the ways that are like um, sterile and in a hospital and the ways that are like messy and accidental in the home. Um, and, and that the, the characters, through their sort of like love for one another, through this profound like connection that they have, um, are able to experience those moments their own birth and others and sort of have this sort of like appreciation of, of, of what miracles they are and, and how much um, joy they've had in their lives as a result of this, this thing that happened. Um, and then that episode aired or was released right around the time that um, on Game of Thrones, another show that I really love, but also, but don't love so unreservedly and at times think I'm going to break up with because I hate it. Um, for many reasons. Um, there is also a nine-minute scene. In both cases, the scene could be a minute and a half, right? It, wouldn't, it didn't need um, to go on for so long, right? It was a decision that the filmmakers made to prolong the scene uh, for whatever reason. And um, whereas in Sense8, it's prolonged because it's magical and, and exalts the soul and makes you feel profound happiness and bliss. Um, this, the nine-minute scene in Game of Thrones is uh, a woman, a character, um, being literally shit upon, right? And people screaming at her, and she's walking barefoot over horrible things. This is a this is a villain, right? This is the this is a character who the show has, uh, in many ways, set you up to hate, and you've spent a long time sort of like hating her. So on, uh, it's sort of the spectacle of her suffering. Of like, here's nine minutes of like this person who you hate getting what's coming to her. Um, and so that's the sort of like the difference, right, of the of a narrative that is like trying to like make you feel love versus a, a narrative that's trying to make you feel like vindictive pleasure and and to revel in violence and to to revel in suffering as opposed to like you know revel in like connection and love. That goes back to the thing that I feel like you do very well, which is I feel like that your characters indulge in a lot of righteous violence the narratives don't seem constructed for us to indulge uncomplicatedly which is a dumb word but uncomplicatedly in in the violence like we're not supposed well I, I won't say we're not supposed to <laughs> maybe sometimes we're supposed to be excited the um in uh i don't often remember the whole name but the heat of us story tell me the whole the heat name. of us colon notes towards an oral history or is it or is it notes toward an oral history? I still don't know toward I, and towards and further and farther. Yeah, I don't know that either. Sorry. And now that I live in England, I'm very confused by lots of things. I don't remember what the right grammar is. But that story, one of the characters is trying to understand why this explosive literally explosive event happened where during the Stonewall riots this energy erupted um, out of the people in Stonewall against the police, against I don't know, metaphor of oppression. Um, but there's a quote in there about how other moments in history, like the I think the Haitian Revolution, that when people are celebrating something, they're unstoppable. And that feels like it connects to Sense8 in the way that those people are love, that the love and connection between them is what gives them power. I don't know, do you, do you believe, or, or, or where do you find the faith in the idea that love and celebration is something that can overcome oppression as we sit in the shadow of the state capital. Of state, of state power. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so on the one hand, I a lot of it is just like, it's that's what I see every day. I am a community organizer, and I see people um, who are dealing with 
horrific oppression, right? I work with homeless folks in New York City who walk into my office every morning uh, having maybe slept for an hour because the cops kept kicking them awake or they were taken to the hospital against their will or to the psychiatric ward or they were arrested for something that wasn't against the law. And yet these are folks who can come together and fight back and who can um, find a productive way to challenge that, right? Because on your own, it, you can't, there's a, there's, a, there's a limit to what you can do if you're one person without a billion dollars, right? If you're not, if you're not Gatsby, um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's only so much you can do to make the change happen in the world that you want. So, you know, if you're a homeless person who the cops roll up on you at two in the morning and you're full of rage as you should be because this is not right and this shouldn't be happening, there's no safe way to access that rage in that moment, right? There's, there's, there's no good, you know, only, only terrible things are going to come from that because the cop will do something bad to you. And yet these folks can come and sit in meetings and plan actions and have made amazing changes happen that have like made things better for homeless folks um, because they came together and they fought for it and they they were motivated from lots of things including anger and rage but also from you know love for each other and the you know and trust in each other and if you think about like direct action especially but not exclusively civil disobedience there's such a high degree of love and and connection that needs to be involved because you have to trust each other and you have to trust that the person who is the police negotiator is going to handle that and is going to prevent you from getting arrested or is going to is going to hold off arrest for as long as possible. And you have to trust that the press spokesperson is not going to say some crazy fucking shit that's going to like make the whole thing look bad, right? Um, you have to trust that the person across the street handing out flyers is going to not piss off the neighbors, right? So yeah, I, I see that all the time. I see love and connection and, and people coming together achieve really great things. And, you know, we've passed some legislation that people said could never be passed and gotten some some policies and, and, and things ended that you know people sort of thought would never be ended so on the sort of like systemic and 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 functional level i think that is is real and something i've observed and there's another level in which i believe that um life just fucking sucks like life is just full of like horrible sadness and uh Nobody, you know, some people will experience a lot more than others, right? And some people will experience a lot more hardship and oppression. And some people will live sort of like lives that are protected by privilege. But even those people are going to like lose people they love and um, have things happen that are like devastating. And nobody controls the world. And as you sort of like go through life and, you know, these horrific things happen and you're just like, you know, I lost my father two years ago and just like I had never really anticipated pain like that I had never even though my father was sick for seven years and um for most of that it was you know the the end end result was pretty clear um I I hadn't so even though I was like I thought emotionally prepared for it I just I wasn't I just you know it hurt in a way that has never really stopped hurting and that you know I, I I've told you before I feel like the world became a little less awesome um, so, you know, life is going to fucking suck and the way to get the thing that makes it livable, the thing that makes it, the thing that makes us keep going and is why I have not yet jumped off of anything really high is because of love and because of the people that I love and the, um, you know, the things that I love and the books and the music and the movies that I love and the fact that like we have art as a refuge and we have each other as a refuge and that we have this, you know, deep connection 
that uh, that is there that we can access whenever we want to others. Um, you know, while people are mortal and people will die, uh, uh, and you will feel pain when you lose people, um, there's a level on which art does not die, and it's sort of a connection to um, all humanity. I think it's actually a James Baldwin quote, although it might be Richard Wright, um, where he says that uh, books were how I learned that the things that tormented me the most were the things that connected me to every other person who had ever lived, right? And that the, the anguish and the loneliness and the pain and the hunger, they, they are not unique, they are universal. So that's, that's, that's the sort of like individual level on which love undergirds my work because that's, that's how I keep going. There's, there's this questionnaire that I adore that this ridiculous, lovely man named James Lipton used to do in the show Inside the Actor's Studio. Yes. You're familiar? Yes. Okay. Uh, My favorite curse word is motherfucker. <laughs> I, I couldn't remember if he asked what your favorite curse word is or just asked what your favorite word is and people volunteered. I'm pretty sure it's curse word. Is it curse word? I think so. Okay, yours is motherfucker. I'm going to have a lot of favorites. Okay. That's actually not one of the questions I picked because okay. I also I also went back to Proust and I was okay. like he because he mentioned Proust what does Proust ask and I also I inserted one to my own so the first one first question what is your favorite word the word that popped into my head is thrust <laughs> and I don't know what that means about me but that's the word that's what I'm gonna go with I mean I love a lot of words I do I have a I have a real fondness for the sort of like short consonant heavy. Anglo-Saxon origin words like thrust and swamp and fuck and shit and pierce and all those like those are the ones I have the most fun using in in my writing and so I, I have a deep a deep uh, they, they they sort of like drum beats uh, on my on my heart. What is your least favorite word? Vertiginous. <laughs> they, they, uh, I, I just that's the that's the word that pops in my head. I don't know that I have a least favorite word. I think that's fair. I think yeah. Um, what is your favorite smell? I will not give an obscene answer, and I will just say my mom's spaghetti sauce. Least favorite smell? Uh, I feel like, uh, are we saying, like, besides shit? Like, I feel like shit is probably, like, a universally least favorite smell. Yeah, it could be. It could be you smell more of it in New York. I just thought that, like, that's, like, human beings, like, that's the most... We are biologically engineered to hate that smell. To like want to get as far away from that smell as possible. Oh, I think shit's okay. Okay, that's, that's what I'm going to go with. If shit. I had, yeah. What do you wish you knew more about? Every science. What do you wish you knew less about? How fucked up governments are. Let's pretend your life has a soundtrack. What song is playing when you're happiest? I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. What is your favorite kind of story? Story? Yeah. Um, a story that leaves me with a sense of justice that that the ending and the character's journey has uh whether or not it's happy has balances has there's a justice to it what is your least favorite kind of story the story where there is no justice (laughs) a story where somebody really good gets shitted on and then it's the end of the story or when somebody really bad get does good you know gets good things and then that's the end of the story so william faulkner He had this quote that he said the only thing worth writing about was the heart in conflict with itself. So if we imagine Faulkner comes back from the dead to write your story, what do you think the story is about? Shapeshifting gay aliens. I would would read it. I would adore that story. Awesome. Sam J. Miller's book, The Art of Starving, is out this week from HarperCollins. Book Riot has described it as funny, haunting, beautiful, relentless, and powerful. 
a classic in the making. You can find out more about Sam at his website, samjmiller.com, or by following him on Twitter at SentenceBender. You can find a version of this interview featuring informative footnotes and illustrious illustrations by our very own E.G. Kosh at our website, storylogical.com. While at our website, be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast and check out our past episodes in which we discuss the stories we love and also everything ever. Of particular interest, perhaps, our very first ever episode in which we discuss Sam's story, Angel Monster Man. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com storylogical. You can follow us on Twitter at storylogical. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kuvols. And E.G. Kosh is on Twitter at, that's right, E.G. Kosh. If you enjoyed this interview and you would like a bit more of our conversation with Sam, including some of his thoughts on Battlestar Galactica and Avatar The Last Airbender, you can find those extra bits in our latest newsletter, to which you can subscribe at our website, or you can find it at tinyletter.com slash storylogical. Storylogical is sponsored entirely by our love of short stories. If you want to support us in sharing that love, there are a few ways you can do that. One, you can rate us on iTunes. You'll find a link for that in the show notes. Two, you can share an episode you love on social media and be sure to tell people why you love it. Three, you can pick one person in your life that you think might enjoy our show and tell them, hey, there's this one podcast you might like. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. Um, so it's raining. We're super wet. Yeah. It's kind of awesome. Yeah, it is. I've, I've enjoyed the ridiculousness of sitting out here. So if, you, if you've heard any planes or trucks, that's because we're in Madison, Wisconsin, for WizCon. Huddled against a granite facade. Yeah. It is otherwise a great con, other than this current rain right. that I've made Sam sit in. And thank and, you. And it's been raining in New York City for approximately eight years. Uh, so I was really excited yesterday when I came to Madison and it was sunny. And the rain, <laughs> the rain just caught up with me. Yeah. That's fair. It's okay. Okay. Thank, thank you for doing this, Sam. Thank you so much for, for, for wanting to talk to me. Of course. Caring about what I have to say yeah. about as I talk about nonsense and life, the universe, and everything. We love you and your stories. Thank you. I love you.